Also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today and a special Jim Rant at the end of today's podcast. So make sure you stay tuned for that. Jim, we start with our good martini, and that is in the arena of judges. Not judicial nominations now, an actual decision from the 8th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in St. Paul, Minnesota. At issue here is a couple named Angel and Carl Larson. They're videographers, and the main bulk of their business is that they video weddings. They're devout Christians, and so they only want to do traditional marriage ceremonies, the union of one man and one woman. And, of course, uh, that's now controversial because uh, the SJW crowd would uh, try to insist that they video whatever clients come their way. Not long ago, the Minnesota Human Rights Act was reinterpreted in a way to suggest that folks like the Larsons didn't have the ability to make that distinction. In other words, that they couldn't choose their clients based on their own conscience. And so, Jim, we've now got a two-to-one decision from a three-judge panel of the 8th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in Minnesota. So this may not be the end of the case, but this couple had essentially sued challenging this reinterpretation of the Human Rights Act, and they had lost at previous levels. And so the fact now that the 8th Circuit Court of Appeals, at least the three-judge panel, still believes we have a freedom of conscience and a freedom of expression is probably a good thing in this country. Yeah. You know, people who have listened to our podcast, Greg, have heard a lot of days where we're like, oh, God, President Trump wants to buy Greenland and he's, you know, boycotting Denmark because they don't want to talk about it. Uh, He wants to nuke hurricanes. He wants to uh, put Russia back into the G7. Why are conservatives, by and large, sticking with this president? Well, because of judges, because of a lot of conservatives accurately assess that there are a lot of people running around who are either ignorant of the Constitution and don't know what it says and don't know what rights it protects and don't know what kind of government actions it restricts, or they know it and they simply don't care. Uh, And they very much believe that it is the job of the government to make you be a videographer for a gay wedding, even if it violates your principles. Bake that cake bigot. If you're a cake baker, you know, they want you to decorate a cake for a gay wedding and you say no. The state has a role of coming in and saying, no, you must do this, even if it violates your conscience. Um, Now, most people would say, you know, there are other cake decorators in this world. There are other videographer services in this world that if you want to uh, have somebody to do one of these services related to your wedding, then you should just go out, find somebody else uh, to do it. And then, you know, maybe you say, hey, you know what? I asked those people to do my wedding. They wouldn't. And uh, maybe that's, you know, bad publicity. And maybe other people don't buy them. Or maybe some people say, hey, you know what? I like their stand. I I applaud their traditional values. I'm going to go use that service. That's what freedom means. A lot of people don't want this. Uh, A lot of people believe that, no, the government should make you do something, even if it violates your conscience, because that's, you know, to do anything else would be an existence of injustice or something. Well, that's what we have judges. In this case, uh, the judges have come down the right way. Look, for all the other frustrations of this presidency, he not only is is Trump picking good judges, obviously getting a great deal of advice from the likes of Federalist Society and all kinds of other conservative legal scholars and and that prevent, presents us with a backstop. Now, that doesn't mean that elections don't matter. It doesn't mean the laws don't matter. But at least there's one group that will come along and say, hey, you know what? This violates the Constitution. You cannot make people do things against the Constitution in this way. Uh, this is not a proper role for the federal for the government. And, uh, you know, it is uh, on, on days like today, that's a pretty good, good martini there, Greg. Yeah, we'll absolutely take it. And I always love the lefties who blast the Federalist Society, but then in the process, get it confused with the Federalist, the website. And uh, 
really on top of it. And yet they're fans of the federal government, Greg. (laughs) Make up your mind, lefties. Are feds good or bad? All right, let's move on to the uh, 2020 campaign now for our bad martini. And no, we're not talking about Joe Walsh, although we could be, but we talked about him last week. All right, let's go to the New York Times. Ken Vogel, who works for the Times and writes for the Times, wrote this story, and he tweeted about it yesterday. New York Times very upset that the Trump administration is uh, planning to use the media as an issue in the 2020 race. Surprise, surprise. He says a loose network of conservative operatives allied with the White House is pursuing what they say will be an aggressive operation to discredit news organizations deemed hostile to President Trump by publicizing damaging information about journalists. It is the latest step in a long-running effort by Mr. Trump and his allies to undercut the influence of legitimate news reporting. Four people familiar with the operation described how it works, asserting that it has compiled dossiers of potentially embarrassing social media posts and other public statements by hundreds of people who work at some of the country's most prominent news organizations. The group has already released information about journalists at CNN, The Washington Post, and The New York Times, three outlets that have aggressively investigated Mr. Trump in response to reporting or commentary that the White House's allies consider unfair to Mr. Trump his team, or harmful to his re-election prospects. So, Jim, we see it on Twitter all the time, supposedly straight news reporters going very much on the opinion side when they go on social media, and now they've got the vapors that those might actually be used to claim that maybe, just maybe, the mainstream media isn't exactly fully objective. Yeah, and when I saw this news, Greg, I, I was kind of, I was less jumping out of my skin than most people were in either the, you know, the, oh, good heavens, this is an assault on the freedom of the press, uh, coupled with the idea, oh, yes, this is awesome, get him, Trump. Uh, I didn't have either one of those reactions. I think that even the New York Times would say, if, if the damaging information was, say, things that got into the realm of Me Too, if it was, let's say, you know, some reporter somewhere is sending, oh, this is not this is not me uh, uh, knowing about something and putting it out in the form of a not-so-hypothetical example. This is generally picking this out of my imagination. Some sort of, you know, vulgar, uh, sexually explicit, uh, sexual harassment type comments in response to people that they don't like. The New York Times probably want to know about that. They probably want to say to this reporter, at the very minimum, cut that out. Um, Alternatively, they might say, you know, I really don't know if you're a good fit here. I don't know if this is the kind of behavior that we can accept in our employees. Maybe it's out there. Maybe it isn't. Now, when they say, you know, uh, uh, Greg, that they've got, you know, political messages from these types of correspondents. Greg, isn't Sarah Jung still on the New York Times editorial board? And she had all kinds of, you know, joking, and I'm making air quotes as I say that, you know, comments about white people and how white people are the worst, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, she's still there. Dan Rather's still working. So he's on reliable sources all the time. Brian Williams is still working. When these guys say they have a lot of fireable material, Greg, do they realize just how high the bar is? (laughs) Fireable material in some of these national media institutions? I mean, Everybody kind of forgot that Mark Halperin was, was uh, sexually harassing people. He's according to all those Democratic campaign consultants who decided to help him with his book. So I'm curious about what they have. And my sneaking suspicion is, is that they're going to have one of two reactions. Either the stuff is going to be, this White House correspondent has social media messages that indicate that they're liberal. And the world will yawn and the sun will rise in the east instead of the west. And life will go, I don't see the New York Times saying, good heavens. Our reporters are liberal. They can't work here. Maybe they've got some really uh, embarrassing information or scandalous information or something that would 
make the New York Times or other publications reevaluate uh, what they have on there. My guess is they probably don't, but maybe in a couple of cases they do. We won't know until they see it. I also would point out that if they had done this kind of looking around at the social media feeds of correspondents who they deem critical of the White House or critical of the president, and they find not much, do you think they're going to tell the New York Times that? Yeah, we went looking. We didn't find anything good. You guys all live pretty clean. So um, our effort was a dud. No, no matter what they find, they're going to say, oh, we got some good stuff here. Oh, you just you guys should be quickening your boots. You're not going to believe what the guy at the next cubicle is doing. Look, we'll see. I don't want to say, you know, prove it, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. Come back to us in a year and we'll see if this effort really has derailed careers with stunning revelations. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there are a couple examples of this, but I don't think you're going to see them cutting a swath through the national media establishment. But again, you know, I didn't see the Me Too stuff coming either. So, uh. I guess you never really know, right? Well, you don't know, and it may just be examples of bias. But like you said, if that's the case, uh, no one's really going to probably uh, say much about it because uh, for those paying attention, it's it's blatantly obvious. But they better have something uh, because they're, they're already touting it, and it's not like just the threat of having some sort of uh, embarrassing information is going to derail the mainstream media from going full bore anti-Trump in the 2020 race. I think that's pretty much already set in stone. Yeah. I, I, once again, you want to say... Is your definition of embarrassing information the same definition as their, their, their idea of what embarrassing information is? I, mean, I think it's safe to say after the 1619 Project or something like that, any comment that has a, a racial animosity, that you know, gives a sense of racial animosity, you know, using the N-word or something, I could see that being a, a sort of issue that would create real problems. But uh, you know, the, the broader point is this is a standard that most folks in the media have been perfectly comfortable applying to just about anybody. And this is, you can, you know, I think I saw a few folks saying over the weekend, this is basically what Media Matters does. Media Matters is an opposition research organization that primarily focuses on conservative journalists or anybody who writes anything that for a long time wasn't just as bad for liberals or bad for Democrats, it was bad for Clintons. This was David Brock being plugged into Clinton world very clearly. Because as soon as the New York Times or anybody else would write something critical of the Clintons, then they would jump all over and argue that this demonstrates the long history of right-wing bias at the New York Times and lots <laughs> of other stuff that would ask you to... Most people would say, oh my God, you need to be checked for head injuries. All right. So there was at one point in that story where I said there'd be information about journalists at, at CNN. Let's talk about CNN here as we get to our crazy martini. There's a show called Reliable Sources. We've talked about this show before. It's hosted by Brian Stelter. We've played a clip of him many times uh, talking to Michael Avenatti about how he takes him seriously as a presidential candidate simply because he's on TV a lot. Talk about a self-fulfilling prophecy when CNN puts him on dozens of time over a few weeks span. But Brian Stelter uh, on Sunday had this segment on Trump's erratic behavior, quote unquote. And it was a very balanced segment, Jim, because on one side you had people saying Trump was definitely mentally ill, even though they had not examined him, which is, of course, very responsible. And then they had this guy from Duke University named Alan Francis, whose point was essentially that calling him mentally ill is an insult to mentally ill people. So that's your balance in this segment. But it didn't stop there. Stelter throws it to Mr. Francis. And Mr. Francis spends a few seconds on supposed mental health analysis and that just goes full bore liberal talking points about how Trump is worse than the worst monsters of history. Dr. Francis, I know you disagree with this view uh, that uh, Dr. Lee and, and a couple other dozen psychiatrists have, have published in this book. You say it's dangerous to be talking this way. Why? 
Well, I think that medicalizing politics has three very dire consequences. Hmm. The, the first is that it stigmatizes the mentally ill. I've known thousands of patients, almost all of them, have been well-behaved, well-mannered, good people. Trump is none of these. Lumping the mentally ill with Trump is a terrible insult to the mentally ill, and they have enough problems and stigma as it is. The second issue is that calling Trump crazy hides the fact that we're crazy for having elected him, and even crazier for allowing his crazy policies to persist. Trump is as destructive a person in this century as Hitler, Stalin, and Mao were in the last century. He may be responsible for many more million deaths than they were. He needs to be contained, but he needs to be contained by attacking his policies, not his person. It's crazy for us to be destroying the climate our children will live in. It's crazy to be giving tax cuts to the rich that will add trillions of dollars to the debt our children will have to pay. It's crazy to be destroying our democracy by claiming that the press and the courts are the enemy of the people. We have to face these policies, not Trump's person. So basically, you're crazy if you're not a raving liberal. So, Jim, Brian Stelter did nothing uh, when Dr. Francis there said that uh, Trump will be more responsible for more deaths than Hitler, Stalin, and Mao. He later clarified that uh, he meant because he's not doing anything about climate change. Here's Brian Stelter's uh, message on that, his tweet. I agree that I should have interrupted after that line. I wish I had heard him say it. But I was distracted by tech difficulties. That's why the show open didn't look like the way it normally does. I had two computers at the table. Not hearing the comment is my fault. Jim, you've been in media a long time. So have I. Do you usually book someone when you have no idea what they're going to say? Usually you have, if not a, you know, if not a full pre-interview, a sense of, we're going to be talking about this and, and all that kind of stuff. And they ask you probably a couple questions um, just to get a sense of your take, your, your viewpoint. Uh, you know, you don't want to line up three guests who all are going to say the exact same thing. A couple of things jump out here. So his assessment is not that Trump is crazy, but the, the what was it, 59 million people who voted for him? <laughs> 62, I there. think, yeah. Okay. The other thing is, is that I, I started thinking about when I saw this comment, Remember The Dead Zone by Stephen King? A couple of versions of this uh, novel. Basically, the idea is the guy shakes the hand of a guy who's running for president, and he has a vision of nuclear apocalypse when he shakes the hand. He suddenly realizes that he has seen a glimpse of the future. He can do it when he touches somebody's skin. He gets a sense of what they're about to do in the future, and he realizes that if this person is elected president, he will start a nuclear war and destroy the world. And so this guy suddenly becomes a aspiring assassin, he becomes a, a good guy assassin, because we, the, you know, the reader know that this president will start a nuclear war. Of course, everyone else thinks that this guy is just a crazy assassin. Greg, if you really think that Trump is going to kill more people than Stalin and Mao and, and all of these other worst, and Hitler and all these other worst monsters of history, first of all, Greg, is, is it a testament to the president's laziness that he hasn't gotten around to it yet? Two and a half to three years of the president's? I mean, if you're going to be one of history's greatest monsters and run up a bigger desert, let's get a move on, okay? Let's. This is kind of kind of takes you know that this is the the real argument. He's a lazy, megalomaniacal monster who destroy us all. I hate long waits to quote Han Solo. <laughs> uh, the but you know the more accurate if, if you really believe this sort of thing, well, then you like this guy would probably one he'd be trying to kill the president. You think he'd be a little more irked at Nancy Pelosi for having a six week recess? and not impeaching the president immediately. Because remember, Trump is going to kill more people than Mao and Stalin and Hitler. It does say something that, the, as you said, the, the CNN idea of balance is that the person who doesn't think Trump is crazy 
is the one who thinks that he's worse than Stalin and Mao. <laughs> the thing that, that with Bob Ryan Stelter is not just that his show is left wing. He is a really bad successor to Howard Kurtz, who used to do that show, and I think did a much better job of exploring these questions. It's Stelzer's like, like believe that he's fooling us. That no, no, he plugs it down the middle, and oh, no, no, and it just happened. I couldn't hear what he was saying at that moment. You know, it's like that moment when Michael Wolf was at. I think he was doing Australian television or something, and they said, you know, I'm having. You know, they asked him a tough question about some reporting that did not pan out. Something he said that was true was later contradicted by facts. They asked him a tough question. All of a sudden, Michael Wolf said, "I'm, I'm having trouble with my earpiece. I, I, I'm not sure I, I could understand that question." Uh, and the anchor said, can you hear me now? And Wolf answered, no, I can't. <laughs> Raising the question of, well, how do you know what he asked them? So, Stelzer, oh, I just happened, at that exact moment, I just happened to lose a bad audio. Well, you know, as soon as my guest went on hinge and said something embarrassing, what were the odds? Oh, man. All right. Extra, extra martini today. Uh, this was the end of the third week of the preseason in the NFL. And if any preseason game is going to hold anyone's attention. It's usually the third week. That's when the the projected starters usually play the most, if they play at all. Some still don't. Uh, and then this final week will probably be mainly used to figure out the final roster spots of the people who don't start. So the August Chicago Bears were playing in Indianapolis on Saturday and won the game, of course, which is really huge in preseason. <laughs> Uh, but the big news was that, uh, once again, uh, Indianapolis Colts quarterback Andrew Luck did not play. He's been dealing with an ankle and a calf injury that's kept him out of training camp, and it's been very murky as to when he would actually be back. Well, I'm not sure who was behind the timing of this, but in the midst of the first half of this game, uh, the Colts pretty much announced that Andrew Luck was retiring. And so with everybody having their phone there in the stadium, the news got around really fast. And as Luck walked off the field at halftime, this is how he was greeted by his own fans. And so then after the game, he talked to the media and talked about how this cycle of injury, pain, and rehab just over and over and over again had robbed him of the joy for the game, and he said it was time to hang it up. Because of how I feel, I know that I am unable to pour my heart and soul into this position, uh, which would not only sell myself short, but the team in the end as well. Uh, And it's sad, but I also have a lot of clarity in this. And so a lot of folks mad at him for retiring at all since he's only 29 years old. They don't think he's tough enough. Others are upset that he's doing it just a couple weeks before the season, and it leaves the team perhaps in the lurch for the 2019 campaign. Jim, you wrote about this pretty quickly after it happened. Not pleased with the fans in Indy. The news was broken by Adam Schefter of ESPN. He's a pretty well-connected reporter. And the reaction of almost everybody, uh, because I, too, was watching utterly boring preseason football on Saturday night, (laughs) was a general sense of, wait, has Adam Schefter's account been hacked? It is hard to overstate just how shocking this was. Now, it's worth noting he had a phenomenal year last year, 2018. Year before that, he missed the entire year because of a, a off-season surgery that just never seemed to heal right. So if he had said, oh, you know, we had surgery, it's on my throwing shoulder, it's not right, I'm just never going to be able to come back, it would be shocking, but at least people would be, okay, well, you know, I guess that shoulder injury really was terrible and never healed right. We know that injury healed right. We also know that, you know, in addition to the you know ankle and calf injuries he was dealing with this year, without the shoulder injury, he kept him out a whole year. Before then, I think it was, you know, he had a concussion. And the year before that, he had a couple injuries, including 
uh, I, I looked this up for the story arc, for the article there, Greg, a lacerated kidney. Now, everyone is just be going, ouch, as you go, Greg, that's on the inside of you. Yes, it <laughs> Imagine is. Imagine how hard you have to get hit by a line, blitzing linebacker for your kidney to get lacerated. And so it sounded like a major factor in this was the fact that his life as part of the rehab of this uh, constant rehab of these injuries was turning into constant physical pain. As he put it, it was taking away his joy from the game. Now, I can totally understand the heartbreak of Indianapolis Colts fans. I think almost every fan of every team has seen some player with a great future ahead of them cut short by injuries. For the Jets, Chad Pennington comes to mind, Al Toon and Wayne Corbett both retired after a bunch of years uh, because of concussions and concerns about head injuries. Look, injuries are a part of the game. And by the way, for those of you who say, oh, well, this is because of helmets or they're not worried about concussions enough. Look, a whole bunch of ACL, by the way, it's anterior cruciate ligament uh, tears and pulls and all that kind of stuff happen in non-contact situations. This is a side effect of professional athletics. Guys get hurt in baseball. Guys get hurt in basketball. Guys get hurt in hockey. But it's probably a little bit worse in hockey and in football because of the amount of bodies colliding into each other. This is, you know, part of what makes sports, I don't want to say great, but, you know, the risk is part of what makes it what it is. We know that you're never more than one play away from suddenly everything ending, which is my, my message to the Indianapolis Colts fans was, appreciate what he gave you guys. He, he you know, Andrew Luck left it all out on the field uh, for as many years as he could. He had, you know, three phenomenal years to start his career. Then he had a couple more injuries. They still, you know, got him back to the playoffs last year, won a playoff game. Show some appreciation. I can understand the shock. I can understand the disappointment. I am sure there are a lot of kids across the Indianapolis, and maybe even the entire state of Indiana, who are crying on Saturday night and into Sunday. But in the end, don't get mad at Andrew Luck for doing what's best for his life. Now, don't get mad at him for doing what's best for his family. Right, Greg, right before we came on here, news came across that uh, Republican Congressman Sean Duffy of uh, Wisconsin will be resigning from Congress next month. His wife, uh, Rachel Campos Duffy, is pregnant again. There are complications with the pregnancy, and their you know daughter is going to require more attention and more care uh, that is normal for for a child. Is a child with special needs? I don't think anybody can begrudge Duffy for walking away when he is. Does he have a lot of good legislative years left in him? Sure. Uh, could he do more with his career in, in Congress? Sure. But you know what? He's decided to do what's best for him and his family. I don't see why anybody else should be feeling the same way about Andrew Luck. This is part of the game. Just be thankful because there are a lot of guys who never achieve what Andrew Luck did. You know, I, I don't want to draw too many far-reached conclusions from the reaction. The kinds of people, Greg, who care enough about football to pay money to attend a uh, preseason football game. Yeah. But, you know, to, to boo him really is classless. And I do kind of wonder if it does reflect something about our society, that the first sense of the first reaction of so many of those fans was anger and feeling a sense of betrayal, uh, something that they were owed was taken away from them instead of appreciation for everything Andrew Luck had done this career. Well, I'd say a couple of things. First of all, it was Indy, not Philly. You'd almost expect it in Philly. Um, yeah. sec- secondly, I think football in a lot of ways, you could say the same for college on Saturdays in the fall, and, and the NFL to some extent as well, has also in some ways become like a secular religion. People just invest so much emotional energy and money and so many other things into football, I don't know if it's just uh, as a as a release from all the stresses of everyday life, but it's just become way more uh, of something people personally attach themselves to than before. And, and people have been devoted fans for a long time, but it seems to take on a different tone now. I mean, even we've had riots after championship wins and losses for a long time, too, but it just seems to take on an even more intense tone now. And my last thing that I would say is that uh, 
right now Redskins fans who gave up a whole lot more to take the second pick in the draft the year Andrew Luck was drafted are saying, wow, you got six years out of him? Wow, that's really good. What's your problem? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I think the, I'm trying to find the quote and I can't. There was a quote in that movie Concussion with Will Smith, which was uh, about the legal and medical fights about how the league treats concussions or something. There's somebody who's, you know, some skeptic who's talking to the Will Smith character who says, do you see that out there, that, you know, the football game? That took over a day of the week, and that day of the week used to belong to God. <laughs> and that's you know, kind of an exaggeration. There's still plenty of people who find room for both church and football. But, but I think you're right, and I, I do think there's this, uh, you know, look, we talk about greedy players, we talk about greedy owners, incompetent coaches, or maybe that's just the Jets fans. Um, but, you know, we, we, we have all this, you know, you know angst and, and you know, anger and, and strong passions associated with all this kind of stuff. There's a fair amount of criticism that can be laid at the feet of the fans uh, and the kind of behavior that is accepted at stadiums. Although I point out that, you know, Greg, I went to Jet Games back in the you know 80s and early 90s, and fights in the stands were not exactly rare. I think you'd probably get about one or two per game, depending on how bad the game was going. And that's one of the reasons they started cutting off booze, uh, beer sales after halftime. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know whether I've been to a game lately. I don't know if, it's, if things have improved on that front, but, um, you know, if we're a classless society, there are plenty. You know, it's not just the elites who are leading us down this path. There are plenty of ordinary Joes who have added to the uh, narcissism and, and lack of empathy that I think was on 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 display there Saturday night. Good luck to all. The, well, not all the teams. Uh, good luck to the Bears. <laughs> good luck to the Jets. And uh, we'll figure out the rest of it as the season goes along, depending on who we need to win and lose. Hopefully, we're actually in the mix. Jim, talk to you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. And be sure to tune in again on Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.